This is the Architecture and Design Podcast, your B2B show for the best thought leadership in the industry, bringing you information, education, and inspiration, only on MarketScale. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another MarketScale Architecture and Design Podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Litwin, the voice of B2B. Folks, thank you so much for joining us on another episode of the podcast. Appreciate uh, everyone always tuning in to what's happening here in the architecture and design world. Obviously, you're giving this a listen from uh, Market Scale Radio on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. That's our umbrella uh, podcast player where we're going to be putting a lot of our insights from a variety of different industries. We've also got Market Scale Technology and Market Scale Manufacturing. So make sure you're subscribing there for a variety of different industry wide podcasts. And make sure you're heading to our website, marketscale.com slash industries for everything architecture and design. So I'm incredibly excited for our guest today, who's going to be bringing us unique and studied insights on the future of design decision-making. As business, small and large, uh, adapts to collaborative technology, popular workplace strategies and methodologies, and the realities of social distancing and personal space reaffirmed by COVID-19, the design decision-making process has become ever more important. And if used correctly, thoughtfully, and strategically, design decision-making can guide businesses in their tactical decisions across the board uh, to better understand user experience and interaction and interactive design based on grounded processes that improve business in positive ways. So today we're pulling from almost 40 years of career experience in thoughtful design, both in the field and in academia. I'd like to welcome Michael R. Gibson, a professor of visual communication design and a graduate programs coordinator for interaction design and design research at the University of North Texas and their College of Visual Arts and Design and the Department of Design. Professor Gibson, welcome. Great to have you on. How are you doing today? Um, terrific. I know that's a real mouthful to get out, Daniel. Thanks. And you got <laughs> right. There's definitely a lot of accolades to break down, but you know, we always got to make sure to do our guests right here on the podcast. That's hugely appreciated <laughs> well, by my administration as well. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Well, Professor Gibson, we're definitely excited to uh, field your thoughts on this subject. I want to start by uh, looking to your past because this really helped ground a lot of your academic insights. Uh, and I think it says a lot about why these design-focused processes are so critical. So let's start by tracking your professional career before you came into academia. Uh, based on your own accounts, a lot of this work helped lay the foundation for your approach to design decision-making and approaching design, specifically as a problem-solving profession. Tell us a little bit about your work starting in 85 uh, with toy design consultancy Marvin Glass and Associates, uh, and give us some context on the learning lessons you took away from crafting some extremely popular toys and uh, how it informed your broader perspective. We'll, uh, we'll, we'll dig deeper here in a second, too. No, that's great. I think um, working at Marvin Glass, one of the most unique things uh, about that, and it was at the time, it was a very different kind of environment than the way that most professional design firms work. You know, most professional design firms at that time, 
you'd sort of start a day or you'd start a week with a Monday meeting and there would be a design brief handed to you and we're going to work on this. We're going to work on an annual report for the XYZ Corporation or we're going to be working on new seating or the new interior for uh, you know, some kind of a hotel lounge area. At Marvin Glass, you came in every day. Nobody told you what you were supposed to be working on. It was what is known and designed as pure blue sky concepting. And that, well, I know that sounds a little frightening to a lot of people in the world of business. Um, you know, Marvin Glass is the company that brought us toys like Lightbright and Rock'em Sock'em Robots and Baby Skates uh, and, and, you know, those kinds of uh, Mr. Machine uh, for those of, that, are, that are old enough li listening on the podcast to remember that. Um, so, you know, those kinds of what you what we came in to do every day was to try to develop prototypes, which is something I think we're going to be talking a lot about today. Um, but prototypes that, yes, they had to be able to generate profits for Mattel and Kenner Parker and Tonka and Galoob and Hasbro. Uh, and in those days, um, Sega and, and operations like that. But the real thing that we talked about uh, was taking a very human-centered approach to designing. And that means not making assumptions, not uh, allowing somebody uh, or a group of somebody from outside basically to say, well, we've got a bunch of data that shows it. It looks like we ought to have this kind of a toy uh, underneath somebody's Christmas tree this Christmas that does X, Y, and Z things. It was up to us as designers uh, to engage in a variety of types of research processes and practices to try to identify opportunities. And one of the people that ran the place was a, a really terrific guy. And anybody who's ever worked for Marvin Glass can imitate him. His name was Harry Disco. And he talked like this, uh, <laughs> rabble in his voice. Uh, but he was very forthright in talking about, you know, what, what did it, take to make something uh, worthwhile to generate a four-year-old's or a six-year-old's attention and also to get the attention of the parents or the grandparents who are trying to purchase that toy. And he talked about how important it was to start with multiple ideas, not just one. And one of the things that Harry used to talk about all the time that my colleagues and I at UNT now try to teach to our students is you don't fall in love with your first idea. You start with multiples for something. Harry also used to say, you know, we pay you to work 48 months a year. We expect 48 viable ideas. Um, and those ideas, if he thought they were viable and the other uh, people we were working for did, um, you took those through to what we call rough prototypes, and they weren't things that were very polished. Sometimes you could literally kind of see the duct tape and bailing wire, but you could actually get a sense of what it would be like not just to play with that toy, but also to have to manufacture it and what its marketing potential might be. Um, and it was a really successful model um, that certainly, I mean, Harry owned racehorses, that was really successful for those people. And that helped a lot of us um, who went on either into design education or to fulfill design management positions at leading corporations around the world. It helped a lot of us get our starts. And then once you transitioned to academia and continued to work in a more research focused environment, 
How did your time with Marvin Glass and Associates shape your approach to integrating user experience and interaction design in your uh, academic work as you developed really strategies for how design-focused practices should evolve? I think um, one of the things that Glass taught me really well that I, I used when I was in graduate school at Michigan and I've used since in leading design research tank uh, projects is that um, you, you've got to allow design processes that challenge assumptions about why people engage in particular kinds of behaviors. And one of the things that's it was difficult in the 80s, it's, I, I think it's even more difficult now uh, in a world where we can Google things and we can check Facebook for things. But, you know, when we relinquish control over how things work, uh, we relinquish uh, our ideas to think deeply in things that are really valuable that I learned at Glass, like future casting and foresighting and we, what we used to call speculative design. All of those things involve designing not for what we have right now and the way that we live right now, but for how we might live in the future. And that future could be 18 months from now. It could be five years from now or even 10 years from now. And uh, Glass was really good at creating an environment where you could design things on purpose that you knew were going to fail. And a huge part of the design research process is building a series, what we call an iterative series of prototypes. And every time a prototype fails, you learn from the failure, what caused it to fail. And it could be a, a mechanical failure. It could be a failure in styling. It could be a failure in that maybe it's not the right product for uh, a particular market, but you have to test the thing. You cannot assume that, oh, you know, this is uh, going to be something that uh, will really work well for me. One of the best lessons I ever learned uh, was in my first year at Glass. Um, myself and a colleague were working on a system that involved allowing a small child, a four to six year old. Uh, in those days, it was you know considered a young woman's toy. A lot of times, we didn't say girls, and it was supposed to allow you to take care of multiple stuffed animals or multiple dolls at once. We spent weeks developing a prototype that would allow you to give your baby a bath at the same time you gave your baby teddy bear uh, a diaper change. At the same time, you put down your stuffed rabbit for a nap and all this kind of stuff. And we took it to a user testing facility. And that's where we as designers are behind a one-way piece of glass and a bunch of small children. In this case, I think there were seven or eight or nine of them all under the ages of six. And they're brought in and they get a one sentence description from a person who is an actor, basically acting like he or she is about a first or a second grade teacher and just says, you know, here's this thing. This is what it does. And then on purpose, someone from outside or outside the room would ring a telephone and that person, that actor would excuse themselves from the interaction. And basically it left the, ch the children to play with the toy on their own. 
And so they rang the phone and I was all excited to see, you know, how these children were going to use all these different features I designed into this and or that my colleague and I had designed into this thing. And within about four seconds of this person leaving the room, these children collectively got together and they flipped my beautiful prototype upside down and started playing with it and having a whole lot more fun with it upside down. But it got me to see that that ways of playing, ways of interacting with this entity, this thing that I designed that I never anticipated, that I never thought could happen. The thing was failing in terms of how I thought it was supposed to work. But what I learned from that experience, and it was a great lesson, is that allowing the people who are actually going to use this thing that I designed, and now we call this kind of thing co-participatory design or co-creative design, but getting the actual users, the human beings who are going to use this thing to interact with it. And if they flipped it upside down and had more fun and were literally laughing out loud as they were doing things with it, and uh, actually they broke a couple of the features that I thought were really cool and indestructible. But that was a great lesson about, again, not working assumptively and uh, knowing that you know when things fail like that, when things break, Uh, you learn a great deal. Another old saying about design, and I'm trying to remember who this should be attributed to. It might be a a fellow that I was actually lucky enough to study with named Victor Papanak. And it's, it's a, there's a phrase in design. It's called running toward the duct tape. And most people, you you see duct tape repairing a a busted car fender or duct tape on a bicycle tire. And a lot of people want to run away from that. I think, one of the things that design research celebrates and that we try to teach our students at UNT is that when you see that duct tape situation, when you know something's broken or something's failing, you run toward that duct tape because you know it's an opportunity to learn something, to try to make something better than it is right now. And that problem solving, I think, is key to uh, taking design out of the esoteric uh, in the kind of layman's terms that many uh you know business people might see design as right if you're not a design professional design might seem more of an aesthetic or even a you know a a functional and, and utilitarian aspect of crafting a space or crafting a website or crafting art right i mean there's that's very true right but but if there isn't a further connection on how is this also solving problems not just how is this useful how is this pretty, but how is this actively uh, really being a reactive and proactive piece of equipment or design or interface that has some longevity and can respond in real time to some of the issues that might come from use cases uh, and its evolving uh, uses, basically. So, yeah, I, I totally agree with that perspective. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? I mean, basically that blend of aesthetics, utility, but then that kind of higher level of problem solving uh, to be the glue between the two. I, I think, yeah, there, there's all kinds of ways to, to use to use your terminology, the glue that holds those things together. I think one of the things that one of the challenges that I think we're getting better at uh, in design, especially when we interact with business, is explaining to people in business, whether they're coming from uh, business management or marketing or the realms of accounting, is that 
we're not just the people that you call in at the end of a decision-making process to make stuff look cool. I mean, one of the things, and, and I, but I do think you're right. That's the way that we're perceived a lot of the time. A lot of people out there still, still equate design with art and we're very, very different. I mean, we share some commonalities, but where design is very different is intent. Uh, our intent is, to use data aware research tools and methods and technologies. And we use those to identify and analyze patterns in human behavior. And that's how uh, we try to make the decisions that won't just affect how something appears formally, but another big thing for us is how something functions. And so, you know, now we're in this era of smart products and we have all these different ways that we can interact with these products. We can gesture, we can use our voices, we engage in conversations. We have machine learning now and augmented reality that still has to be rooted uh, in what I call just, uh, you know, talking about what you said about problem solving. You still have to solve real problems for real people in the real world. And I think uh, that means you have to be adaptive and you have to be flexible. Another thing I think that helps, you know, to use your phrase from before that helps provide the glue is design is very adaptive. Uh, it's very adroit. It can flex. Um, one of the things that we talk about and to the point where it's become a cliche with us is that in order to design really well, you have to become very comfortable being uncomfortable. What that means in a lot of contexts is that our process is not, is anything but linear. There's no step by step to doing this. Um, ours rather is very cyclic. It tends to loop back on itself. You know, the, there's sort of a classic design mantra, certainly in design research that you, know, you talk about problem solving. You have to be really good at identifying and framing those problems first. What are the contextual factors that are going to affect how you approach something? So if you're looking at something like, you know, what are ways we can get people to conserve fresh water in the state of Texas, which is a real issue for us, you have to look at all the different, you know, who's involved with that? Who are we, we call them actors? Who are all the different people from real estate developers to, you know, somebody trying to water their lawn on a weekend? You have to account for those. You have to look at what we call conditions. And in our context, conditions are things you cannot change it's hot in Texas in the summertime. You also have to look at how people want to be perceived by others. So all those factors now have to be considered. So to put a bow around all that um, is would be to say to, to people involved in business and people especially involved in product development, get designers in on the ground floor, um, make sure they have a voice uh, on your teams and I think it's important for businesses now who want to stay competitive to build research capabilities and professional design, um, you know, have that in-house rather than sort of reaching outside for it and waiting for the research to be. Uh, I have a colleague who likes to say you want to avoid being in a situation where the research is thrown over the wall to you. Rather, you're much stronger if you have those kind of design research capabilities uh, baked in to your processes so that it becomes part of your culture uh, as a business for doing things. Since you entered academia in the mid to late 90s, uh, how have you seen the field for UX and interaction design grow, change, adapt, meet the needs of 
of the current environment. Um, and I'll I'll dig in with a few follow ups after you lay out the groundwork there. I think one of the biggest changes that I've seen. So, so I started teaching interaction design in Milwaukee, Wisconsin in 1995. So I like to joke with my students, you know, I'm, I'm one of the the, the old people uh, and I do have a few gray hairs now who's who's doing this. But in those days, so in the late 90s going through, I'd say, you know, what I'll call the, the and a lot of other people call it this too, the dot-com bust of 2000 and 2001, interaction design was very reactive. It was very passive. It was designed basically to uh, provide a user with um, information that the, you know, you had to know what you were asking for. You, you had to know what you were about. Um, what you've started to really evolve uh, as the, the double lot, so to speak, progressed is that you started to see development of these data aware research tools. Um, we had suddenly new ways to identify behavior, you know, not just, and of course you have the advent of things like social media and Facebook and that kind of thing. I think one of the biggest things that happened uh, as you sort of progress along a timeline as you, as you get into the late aughts and Facebook, um, I don't know if they're responsible for this, but they certainly facilitated it. And that uh, they amplified a, a tendency to actually used to teach about in my advertising classes, but Facebook and Instagram and some of the other um, uh, interaction facilitation tools that we have or systems, it's pushing the tendency toward tribalism. So for a long time, uh, at least in the way we used to teach it at UNT and advertising um, and marketers learn this, too, that. You know, you were looking for ways for people to become members of your tribe. So, for example, when I designed uh, back in Milwaukee, I had Harley Davidson as a client, the motorcycle company. And one of the big things we were trying to do, myself and a bunch of colleagues there were designing a variety of packaging for Harley Davidson. Golly, this was in the mid 90s, right? Right when the web was really starting to take off. And the idea was how could Harley's early web presence sort of tie in with what we were doing with some of their package design so that you would become a member of the Harley tribe? You know, other brands do this too. Jeep uh, is another really good example. There are tons of cosmetic products uh, primarily for women that do this. You be part of, be, become part of someone's tribe. What really changed as the late aughts transition into the early 2010s was this idea that you're using users could actively provide feedback to you. Um, so um, suddenly interaction designers and user experience designers could start. So, so a, a quick difference, user experience design, and there's tons of definitions for this. User experience designers, um, it's, it's sort of a, it's a mashup of social sciences um, and what I'll call more traditional design uh, in terms of human-centered design, coming together to create experiences for people that make whatever it, the experience is more useful, more usable, and more desirable. And the slang we use at UNT is UUD. So UUD really started to come on, really started to snowball in 2008, 2010, 2012, right in there. This this idea that you would design experiences and not just websites, not just apps, but you know, how could you make 
uh, somebody's experience of getting a new driver's license at the Department of Motor Vehicles less uh, excruciating? How could you streamline the process that uh, you know, somebody going through airport security, especially if they're not from the United States, you know, if they're going through DFW or LaGuardia, New York or O'Hare in Chicago or LAX, how could you make those experiences less painful, more fluid, again, more useful, more usable, more desirable for people? So that's the user experience side. Interaction design looks at data that you glean from analyzing user experiences and literally having that data affect the design of what something looks like in terms of the interface itself, what we call UI or user interface. But is also, and this is really crucial, how those user, user interfaces function. So an example, and this was very early on, this was maybe 2011 or 2012 uh, at UNT, and we had a student research team go out to a local grocery store in Denton that had just implemented the self-checkout, the automated checkout feature. And this sounds like something out of a comedy movie, but the students observed an older woman who was literally trying to buy cat food go through this automated checkout stand, and she had nine or ten or maybe a dozen cans. And she could not figure out how to get the thing to work. And she got so frustrated, she shoved all the cans into a bag and then showing what the students said was surprising dexterity and strength for a, a person of, of sort of her physical ability. She took the cans in the bag and she slammed them down onto the scanning glass and broke it and stormed out of the store. And so that's an example of, of you know, a, it's, a, it's a case uh, of when user experience design wasn't carefully considered by whoever it was that designed the interaction. One of the things that UX IX has also evolved to do, so user experience and interaction design teams are now incredibly interdisciplinary. So you have people who've been to design school working directly with people who have computer science backgrounds and working directly with people who have social sciences background, particularly from anthropology, and working with people who have marketing and business management backgrounds. One of the toughest challenges that started to face interaction and user experience designers, I'd say starting in around 2015 or 2016 or so, was how do all these people with these really diverse backgrounds get to broad understandings and get to common language so they can communicate effectively with each other? So to, to borrow an old quote from the old I Love Lucy show, something that Desi Arnaz used to say to Lucy's character on the show a lot, he used to say, you know, Lucy, you've got some splaining to do. All of these people, all of us, anybody on an interaction or a user experience team, depending on the nature of the project, is going to have a whole lot of splaining to do. Um, so I'll stop there, Daniel. Is, is that getting some of what you need? Definitely. And I wanted to follow up with what you were saying there, but just honing in some of those thoughts on uh, today's needs and relationships in the industry. So what does that growth and evolution in the field reflect about what is leading design innovations for today's businesses and some of the relationships between academic design research and the enterprise world's design needs? Uh, one of the things I think um, that designers uh, working in these 
diversely populated teams, uh, you know, on behalf of a really wide array of wide array of clients need to think about really carefully is um, considering carefully the consequences that are going to occur downstream uh, because of our ability to now design things that are so user friendly. So one of the things that's occurred um, looking ahead is, and it's a way that uh, user experience design and interaction design have really changed the world we live in. We now have click button consumption. Um, you know, we joke sometimes in our classrooms that instant gratification now takes too long. Uh, you know, especially if you've got a really effective interface. But you know, if you can, uh, you you consider now, and I'm borrowing this from somebody that we reference a lot in interaction design. He's a guy named Alan Cooper. Um, but he calls for a consideration of not just whether a product works, but what its implications are. So, um, and he's suggesting that there's a new way for designers and their business clients and partners to work together um, to privilege the future over the present and to see implications that we may not have noticed before. So like one of the things we now teach in our classrooms, both at the undergraduate and graduate levels, we teach students to engage in, in uh, designing things called futures wheels. And that's just a way it's, it's basically a big diagram. It's a, it's a big wheel you put on a whiteboard or a piece of butcher paper. And it's a way of generating ideas about what we might need to invent given a situation that doesn't exist yet, but looks like it might very soon. And in light of the COVID-19 pandemic we're dealing with right now, I've had three different student groups in the last six years, and I've had a colleague who's probably had about as many that have looked at, you know, okay, what do we need to do if we're facing a pandemic? You know, it's not just science fiction anymore. It's, it's real. Well, and now it is real. Uh, so what could you do um, to enhance, you know, if you're looking at it through the lenses of an emergency medical person, you know, how do they look at it? If you're looking at it through the lenses of somebody who's in um, an elder care facility, you know, what are they going to have to deal with uh, every day else, every day? So it's another way um, doing this, this kind of future casting. Um, there's, uh, what some interaction designers now refer to as industrialized empathy. And what we're trying to do now, right now, I mean, what we're, what I taught this last semester, what we're pre preparing to teach, uh, this fall is account for not just what users want now, but what those users might want to become and what kind of world or worlds might those users want to create, and I think that's a, a really important thing or a thing, an important way for designers and their partners to, to think about. You know, it's uh, another fellow that uh, we have our students read is, is a guy named Rick Robinson. And there's a good quote from him that designers now have to justify research in terms of, you know, not just its continuing value, not based on what they found, um, but you know, what this is going to guide in terms of decision-making going forward. And when we talk about decision-making going forward, um, we use an acronym at UNT and it's become pretty common, but we talk about how design decision-making now affects 
events that are occurring and that will occur in, we talk about STEEP is the acronym, S-T-E-E-P. And that's just S for social, T for technological, E for economic, uh, another E for environmental, and P for political slash public policy. And often that means adapting methods that we borrow from other disciplines um, to design problems and define acceptable evidence uh, for practical applications that are in practice. That last bit is from Robinson again. I want to f- uh, further hone in some of your thoughts on K through 12 spaces. Uh, this is one area where starting in 2016, you and your fellow uh, colleagues at UNT uh, were really able to bring your research to the field and we're able to see why design is so critical for K through 12 education spaces and really uh, making the case for uh, personalizing a lot of the design for students and for teachers in mind. So could you give me some big takeaways in the sort of individualized design that you brought to K through 12 spaces, what that research in the field looked like, Uh, and why it's critical to understanding this broader shift in uh, design-based decision-making. Sure, and I'm really glad you're bringing that up. Um, This, uh, the interest in bringing, some people call it design thinking. I think that's uh, unfortunately come to be uh, an overused term now, and it's a very misunderstood term too. And I'll, I'll come back to that in a moment. But in terms of what we learned, I mean, we started planning uh, and it was we kind of did it in fits and starts. I can remember I ran workshops in 1995 and 1996 and again in 2005 in Milwaukee, Wisconsin for middle school and high school students trying to introduce to them uh, what we call the design process. And I've I've touched on it in other parts of our conversation today. But some big uh, tenets of the design process uh, are designed to help people develop what people in education call habits of mind. Those habits of mind uh, are supposed to help uh, K through 12 students develop critical thinking. And, And I'll qualify a few of them. So if you learn how to engage in critical thinking really well in kindergarten, in third grade, in sixth grade, Uh, in the rest of middle school through high school, you tend to not fall in love with your first idea. You tend to learn how to be very perseverant in something. Um, You you see things through to the end. You also, and we've talked about this earlier in this conversation, you become at least somewhat comfortable with this idea that not everything you try is going to work or be perfect the first time. And, and you can learn from failing uh, or failing at things just as much as you can uh, as when things succeed. And I think that actually from, from what we've tried, we've tried this uh, in Dallas. We've tried this uh, in the city of Denton. Um, we've tried a little bit of this in places. Let's see, where else have we been in Richardson, also in Frisco. One of the biggest takeaways is that, um, and it's actually, we found that, that younger students are much more comfortable than this with older students. And they're much more comfortable with this than their teachers are the idea of celebrating failure that when you're making prototypes so that, and that's a lot of what we're doing when we're bringing, 
uh, design education in the K through 12 environments is we're trying to teach uh, young adults and children the value of prototyping. Um, one of the things that we talk about uh, is, you know, in order for jet planes to fly really well, somebody had to design those jet planes or design models of them and uh, pretend to fly them in places called wind tunnels. And then sooner or later, somebody had to actually build that very first version of whatever plane it is, whether it's a military aircraft or, or a passenger aircraft, somebody actually had to have the guts to fly that thing up in the air. And sometimes the people that flew those initial planes in the air, they were told or they were ordered if they were in the military, hey, try to tear the wings off this thing. Try to blow up the engine. We need to know what's going to cause this thing to fail so we can design it not to fail when other people are flying it. So this idea of celebrating failure is one of the biggest takeaways that we've had and getting students comfortable with the fact that they can learn very much uh, from when they, they fail. Some other things that we talk a lot about is, and I think I, we talked about this a little bit earlier in this conversation too, um, putting students and their teachers in situations where they learn how to do that thing that I talked about before called framing a problem. So, and, and also identifying a problem. So a lot of times we'll talk about, you know, what is it something, what is something that's happening in your home life? And it could be anything from like, you know, how the pets in your house uh, eat their food or behave or something or how dishes get washed or don't get washed in your family's kitchen. Um, what's something that's problematic, that's not working as well as you would like, that is an undesirable situation in your house? And let's think about that and let's talk about what some of the causal factors for that might be, you know. And we've heard things like my sister and my brother is always playing their music too loud or, or, you know, things like that. Then we ask them to extend that thinking, you know, what's something that's going on in this classroom right now or maybe that happens on a daily or a weekly basis in this classroom that you think could be done better to enhance your learning experience? And then we ask them to extend from that. Are there some things that happen in the cafeteria when you guys go to lunch um, aside from maybe, you know, what the food tastes like, um, um, not saying that that's good or bad, but is there something about your dining experience, uh, at lunchtime that could make that experience more positive for you? And then we extend from that. Let's talk about the whole school. Uh, is there something that could be happening with the way that, um, something that, that occurs in the building, you know, what's it like to try to get from one classroom to another? What's it like? And then we extend from there. What's it like when you're coming to school in the morning, whether you're riding a bus or you're walking or someone's taking you to school, or you're riding a bicycle or a skateboard. So another big takeaway is how empowering it becomes for students when they start to realize, Hey, when I start to look at situations in my daily life that are undesirable and I start to try to think about ways or things that could happen that would make those experiences more desirable, that it, it's empowering because students start to realize, hey, I have the power of operating within my own brain, so to speak, to take some action to make this better. And I might be able to try to, in classes with these uh, professors from UNT or just with my own teachers, 
to make these situations better. Another big takeaway, and we've learned this is really important, uh, especially as we've worked, we've worked with some really incredible personnel in the Denton Independent School District. I, I can't say enough uh, good things about the, the folks right here in, in Denton, Texas, uh, who run Denton's public schools. But one of the things we've learned from them is how crucial it is to work with teachers for long periods of time before we ever set foot in a classroom, because we don't want to make assumptions as designers. We know, you know, who knows those students better, maybe than the students themselves or those students' parents, than their teachers. So a big takeaway is to, and this this was, was uh, pointed out just this last academic year as we work with middle school teachers in Denton. You know, there was one middle school we worked in that just the teacher said, you know, I've, I've got a, a very curious, um, very intelligent group of seventh and eighth graders, but they don't sit still. They're kind of rambunctious. And we had another school where the teacher said, I've got a group of really curious, really intelligent seventh and eighth graders, but they, they're pretty well mannered. And learning from those teachers how to or that we were going to need to have to adapt how we taught these prototyping lessons that I talked about, those were huge takeaways from us. So a big one is you've got to work with individual teachers. And again, it's a co-creative, co-participatory experience. The teachers have an enormous amount uh, to tell designers uh, about how to bring and how not to bring design into those classrooms. Finally, I'll give you one last takeaway, Daniel. A big one is we became... I think very effectively, but it took a lot of time. It took us about a year and a half. We had to learn what the learning objectives, the daily lessons are, and they have to be this way in a variety of classrooms. You have a thing called the TEKS, Texas Education and Knowledge and Skills. All teachers in Texas have to make sure their students uh, learn these, these essential elements and principles in any given discipline. So what we wound up doing is, try, is having to figure out, again, through prototyping, how did we create these um, design prototyping lessons and learning experiences in ways that also supported what these teachers and, and administrators were having to do to fulfill their obligations to meet state learning standards. Um, and, and that was a really big takeaway for us too. Um, oh, one last thing, having to understand that anything that we would do in any classroom also has to fit within a larger curriculum that these teachers and these um, K through 12 administrators uh, have worked really thoughtfully to try to create craft uh, on behalf of their students. All right, Professor Gibson, uh, last main question I've got for you then. If we take all of these insights that you've uh, put together for us and try to hone them into what companies can be doing right now, uh, big and small, uh, to use design decision-making processes uh, practically and positively what are some of your tips and pieces of advice for approaching that with a design-focused mindset and really seeing design as a problem-solving tool and not just something aesthetic or completely utilitarian? Uh, some examples of, of potential solutions that might need to be solved or um, design tactics that need to be avoided are wasting time and money, uh, 
you know, seeing design as some kind of extra special cherry on top that isn't really holistic or structural. So, yeah, those are just some examples off the top of the head here from me. But what do you think about design tips, best practices as businesses, big and small, look to bring this design decision making into uh, their processes? I think um, some of the big ones now, especially in light of the fact that uh, and depending on what statistics you want to look at, at least a quarter, if not a third of the world's entire population uses a smartphone almost every day. And one of the things that's happened uh, as a result of that is we've gotten pretty adept at designing the surfaces of these phones, the user interfaces and their functionalities, and they make it really easy uh, for people to do so much. And they, they, the academic term is obfuscate, but maybe a more friendly term would be just simply hide these, these well-designed, these slickly designed user interfaces hide so many outcomes and so many costs and even so many audiences. They hide things we can't see. So by getting design into a product or a project or a service or a system development process early, uh, I think can help businesses and the businesses that businesses are partnering with. It can help them start to understand, hey, if we make it really easy to get this product or, or for a consumer to purchase this product to, to punch the button, to engage and click button consumption. Uh, let me rephrase that, Daniel. Sorry. We've made it so easy with the way that we've designed the user interfaces that constitute so many screens on our smartphones now. Um, we've made it so easy for users to engage in click button consumption. And um, businesses sometimes get caught up in the ease with which this process can evolve without thinking about What's this going to do to somebody working in a warehouse someplace is trying to fill a particular order? Um, how stressful have we just made that person's life? Have we created a demand for something that cannot be fulfilled, um, which can create all sorts of problems with supply chain and logistics? So I think getting design in early uh, in processes like this, and again, not just for the look and the feel of the user interface uh, and the interaction design, but designers are really adept at planning and about and at understanding the ramifications of decision making. So I think um, that's a really important thing to consider. Another sort of mantra of user experience design. Um, so much of user experience design is based on making an interface that's that's really well ordered, that seems really intuitive in terms of the logic that it uses. You know, it, it makes navigation really facilitatable. Um, you know, you get great feedback from knowing what you've done uh, or, or, you know, you, you, you know, hey, I've I, this is exactly where my baseball tickets are going to allow me to sit in the stadium and that kind of thing. Um, but uh, the path or the pathways that we use to get to those decisions, I think those are things that more businesses need to debate. I think especially in the midst of what's looking like if the very least a recession, if not a depression, um, businesses need to 
look to these diverse teams of designers and anthropologists and people who have business background, backgrounds to have kind of a, hey, wait a minute moment. You know, one size does not fit all. We are not all just one person. Human beings are fickle. Um, you know, we have good actors and bad actors and those kinds of things. I think when design starts to fail, businesses is when we make things so well. And I think I'm borrowing this from uh, Robert Fabricant, uh, who's at Dahlberg Design. But one of the things that he's kind of famous for saying is that good user experience design seems like it's inevitable. But he's also questioned that uh, in saying that, you know, hey, maybe it shouldn't seem so inevitable. Another thing that design can do to really help business, if businesses are willing to get design research teams in on the ground floors of projects. And I believe really strongly in this, and I've seen this play out in golly, personally, in dozens of instances, design can prevent businesses from wasting precious time and money on trying to solve the wrong problems. I can't tell you how many times I've seen that play out where whoever it is that has decision-making power in XYZ Inc. or a corporation decides we're going to follow path A. And you get a whole team of people together on it and whatever that team costs to operationalize for six months. And you realize after the first round of usability testing, holy mackerel, uh, we're, we're not trying to do the right thing. We missed the boat. Um, you know, if we engaged in a little more broadly informed uh, research at the very front end of this process, um, we could have saved ourselves a lot of trouble and a lot of time and a lot of money. Um, to be more specific about that, one of the things that I'm a big champion of, we teach both our undergraduates and our graduate students in user experience and interaction design to do this, the power of what we call paper prototyping. I've been teaching paper, paper prototyping for almost a quarter of a century, and lots of people in user experience and interaction design have. But what we found is that we, we've, um, at least I'd say in the last five years, some folks are going away from that. And I think it's really hurt uh, a lot of businesses that try to bring new apps to market or new kinds of interfaces or new interactive products or services, they, they want to sort of ditch the research. They want to ditch the paper prototyping and what you can learn from that and go right to the design of the user interface. And my analogy for the danger of that is this, Daniel. Imagine you're building a building and it's going to be eight stories tall and you construct five out of the eight stories. And suddenly through research or maybe something that someone on the client team decides they want to do, someone decides they want you to build a cantilevered swimming pool between the third and the fourth floor. Bear in mind, you've already built five floors. So we're going to try to add a cantilevered swimming pool that hangs out over the street between the already built third and fourth floors. Um, most architects and most construction managers would tell you, I think that's some kind of crazy. That's what happens 
in interaction and user experience design when um, businesses and designers can be guilty of this too. When you race through the front end research to try to get to the user interface too quickly, when you don't do that research, you, you know, you, nobody wants to design that cantilevered swimming pool uh, between two floors of a building that already exists. It's almost impossible. And even if you can do it, you're going to eat enormous time and money. All right, Michael Gibson, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Again, we've been chatting with Michael R. Gibson. He's a professor of visual communication design and a graduate programs coordinator for interaction design and design research at the University of North Texas and their College of Visual Arts and Design and their Department of Design. Professor Gibson, if people want to find out a little bit more about your work, uh, whether that's in academia or in practice, uh, where can they go online to learn more about you? Um, A couple of places. So one would be um, the website that we've designed or my colleagues and I have designed that supports uh, our master's program in interaction design. And that is UNT-IXD dot com or um, way way back to, I'll, I'll use uh, I'll say it this way um, the URL for the UNT program and in interaction design uniform November Tango dash Indigo X Ray Delta dot com UNT dash IXD dot com another place is a journal it's an academic journal but. The, the point of the journal is to bridge gaps in understanding between the professional world uh, and the world of design, particularly design and academia. And the journal's name is Dialectic. And Dialectic is published by the American Institute of Graphic Arts, or AIGA, in particular, the Design Educators Community of AIGA. And Dialectic uh, can be found online at uh, quod.lib.umich.edu slash d slash dialectic. Golly, that's a mouthful. I'll tell you what, this is easier. Just Google <laughs> or DuckDuckGo dialectic plus A-I-G-A. Yes, that'll be easier, I think, for listeners. Just Google or DuckDuckGo dialectic and or plus AIGA and you'll find that. And so uh, I am the producer and co-managing editor of Dialectic along with my colleague and friend, uh, Professor Keith Owens. Uh, And Keith and I also um, uh, both teach in our MA and interaction design program. So you'll see some of our work, some of our writing, but also just Everybody who's published something on design research in dialectic uh, has had some kind of interaction with myself and with Professor Owens. Um, So those are two places. Again, dialectic and the website of the MA in interaction design at the University of North Texas College of Visual Arts and Design. All right, Professor Gibson, thank you again. Looking forward to getting you back on for some more insights. That's uh incredibly been my pleasure, Daniel. Thanks very much. And thanks for formulating such terrific questions. Well, thank you very much. Always love to hear that too. 
And thank you everyone for listening to today's episode of the podcast. If you like what you heard and want to listen to previous episodes, I encourage you to subscribe on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and leave a rating and a comment wherever you're listening to your podcast content. Of course, you can find this podcast and other articles, podcasts, and blog video content on our website, marketscale.com industries for all the latest news and insightful information from a variety of different B2B verticals. I'm your host, Daniel Litwin, the voice of B2B, and we'll catch you next time.